Hello, and welcome to On Record In Conversation. I'm Jess Collins from the Birmingham Music Archive. In this podcast series, recorded in front of a live studio audience, we explore the vibrant and diverse music history, heritage and culture of Birmingham through the stories of some of those who have shaped and continue to influence the city's musical landscape. In this episode, Satnam Rana talks to DJ, television and radio presenter Bobby Friction. As one of the faces of the BBC Asian Network, Satnam asked Bobby about DJing at Shanti in the Custard Factory and his successful journey into broadcasting. She also asks about his continuing love of music and why Birmingham has a special place in his heart. Great to see so many of you here on this uh, lovely, sultry Saturday Mm -hmm. evening overlooking our Civic Square, which is kind of getting ready for the Commonwealth Games. But seriously, this is Birmingham. Look at it. It's amazing. I'm loving all the branding around Birmingham right now, the Be Bold, Be Birmingham branding. And I think actually it's going to feed into our conversation tonight. So Bobby um, and I have known each other over a number of years because of my time at the BBC before I joined um, GBS LEP. And, well, I kind of know you. We've had some sensible, like really sensible conversations in and out of the studios, haven't we? Mainly around our kids. And then we've had some not so sensible conversations back in the day when um, we used to hang out at Shanti and various clubs around oh, Birmingham. Yeah. I remember, remember it very clearly, driving from London all the way to the Custard Factory and just realising, look, I'm going to be honest with every single one of you, when you get brought up in London especially, Birmingham's brand on a street level is, it's changing now, is really bad. It's up there with Liverpool's brand in terms of how negative it is and how untruthful and how not based in reality it is. So I remember driving up and just, you know, this is the early days of uh, Digbirth Custard Factory. And I remember going to my first Shanti club night and going, this is the club I've been waiting for all my life. And this is, at, you know, literally during the same time I was DJing at the Blue Note in London. I was DJing and... Bjork was turning up and David Bowie was, was turning up. Amazing. And I went into Digbeth and I remember seeing a thousand young Asian kids losing their minds over a mix of electronic music and uh, Bhangra music. And I just remember thinking, wow. It was electric in there when we were kids. But well, it, it not could even only kids, have young adults. In Birmingham. My, my wow was, is this Birmingham? Because if this is Birmingham, I don't want to live in London. And weirdly enough, you know, as fate would have it, I ended up moving to Birmingham. I remember walking down Bearwood High Street when I still lived in London, and literally, this is because my friend was getting married, looking around and saying, this is a hole, you know? When it, <laughs> who'd want to live here? Guess what? My local high street's Bearwood High Street. Yes! <laughs> so, you know, the universe has a weird way of, of uh, throwing your words right back at you. Um, so tonight, Bobby, we, we know you, obviously, as a DJ. We know you as a TV presenter. Um, we know you um, in the past uh, being in a band um, and, and lots of different, um, I guess, facets of Bobby Friction. But tonight's really about getting behind you as the man and the person. And you've already alluded to, you, you're not originally from Birmingham. So where were you born? I was actually born in Hammersmith in London. Born in 1971, and uh, the story of my youth was being born in, back then, an ostensibly very brown area, being born in Hamsmith, growing up in Hounslow, and then around the age of seven, being taken all the way out to uh, Hampshire and Surrey, and basically in, in the late 70s, early 80s, then getting an onslaught, a tsunami of racism, uh, actual physical beatings on a daily basis until I was in my mid-teens and then I went back to uh, Hounslow. So essentially I had the best of brown Britain, multicultural Britain and the best because it wasn't just the beatings of white Britain and specifically I would say white working class Britain and both of those experiences shaped me fully. The racism shaped me but also the amazing white working class culture of Britain shaped me as much as brown working class British culture as well. In what way? Um, I think to understand this country, you have to understand 
the white working classes because they built this country. I know, I know we can go off on a tangent about how empire also built this country and people of colour built this country, but white working class Brits built this country because they were essentially, they were seen as the other by whether you want to call it the establishment or whether you just want to call it a loose affiliation of middle class families and upper class families who just by random chance have ended up running this country. So uh, um, they treated those white working class Brits the same. So for me, understanding white working class Britain made me understand everything that makes this country trick, all its glories, all its amazing stuff, and also all its bad vibes as well, because there's a lot of bad vibes in this country, like most countries. And to love this country, I need to understand all of that. So as a family, did you see yourselves as brown working class or middle class? Oh, my mum and dad definitely were treated as brown working class. They saw themselves as brown middle class just because my mum and dad were Lahori Sikhs. Uh, and after partition in 1947, they didn't have land. They were part of the big refugee kind of movements that happened in 1947. So they ended up in the cities. And actually, there's a real tale of how cities shape culture and shape people. My dad, who would have probably, if there hadn't been partitioned, would have still been just a Lahori Sikh, ended up moving at the age of eight with his brothers and sisters and mum and dad to, you know, Paharaganj in Delhi, which is, you know, where the backpackers go now. Mm -hmm. Um, He lived around about 300 metres away from Delhi main station. And I tried to explain this to my kids. I went, it's like living 300 metres from Euston. That kind of living shapes you forever. It's not the same as everyone else in your country. So basically, when they came over and they realised, and they probably looked at maybe some of your relatives, and they just went... There are people, but they're not because they've come from the villages. Whereas my dad literally wafted around, kind of going, well, I'm from Dili. You know, I'm, I'm from this multicultural space because Dili was a multicultural space even post-partition. Buddhists, Jains, Christians, Hindus, Hindus of all castes, Sikhs, you know, uh, still fam- Muslim families left behind. And my mum had the same situation where she was brought up in Chandigarh. People in Chandigarh, which was uh, designed by... The architect, Corbesier, who designed the entire city, you know, in that kind of mid-20th century reach towards living for people via concrete brutalism. So even she had this kind of chip on her shoulder. I'm not a village girl anymore. I've come from Chandigarh, so we had a very working-class upbringing. But my mum and dad, me and my sister, call my mum Hyacinth Bouquet. (laughs) All right. Not bucket. No, not bucket. Not bucket. Because <laughs> my mum would literally walk around the house, kind of going, "We're not like these Bindus," right. which is basically villagers in villagers. Punjabi. We're not like these Bindus, and I, I, you know, it's only in later years I learnt that my mum is, and I love her for this, a living, eating, breathing version of hyacinth. You know, someone who's working class, but who will not let anyone believe that she's working class. Actually, there's something a little bit aspirational in that for me. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing, is it? No, no, no. My mum and dad did the whole thing of, you can be a doctor, we want you to be a doctor. But usually when you meet doctors of South Asian origin in this country, they come from a long line of doctors. There's no doctors in my family <laughs> apart from my dad's brother. And even he kind of just about scraped in. So, um, yeah, the, their aspirations were the aspirations of all working class people who work hard and get treated like really badly by the establishment and their yeah their dream was for us to move within the system and to upgrade and of course and we'll come to this later did i become a doctor no did i pass my exams no did i was i a good asian boy no i gave them a horrific 10 years during my teens um, I was going to come to that. So what sort of kid were you? <laughs> a naughty kid by all accounts? Or, or were you a bit of a rebel? No, I wasn't no? at all I, until I hit 13. Um, I'm, I'm only just breaking this down now. I was actually kind of a good kid. Were you compliant up until then? Kind of compliant. I mean, once again, my mum and dad defined themselves against Bindus. All right? So oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So what they'd do is they'd come down like a ton of bricks on us and then kind of go, but we want you to grow 
You know, yeah. we're in Britain now. We want you to do amazing things. So actually, um, it was a Punjabi family. They were very, very liberal. And I was compliant. And then my teens hit. And the trouble with my teens is quite a few things happened at the same time. As I say, at my age now, it's only now I can break it down. Number one, I moved into senior school and was bullied on a racist level every single day, every single hour, every single minute. And the teachers and the other kids didn't stop it. Not that they could have, they, they weren't interested. Number two, uh, you know, almost like some stupid, bad South Asian novel, me, the protagonist, found himself in New Delhi the night Indira Gandhi got shot. So basically, um, me and my family were in a house uh, when a mob of about 300 people tried to burn it down whilst we were stuck inside. Let's just contextualise this for anybody who doesn't know. So this was a time when Indra Gandhi, he was the Prime Minister of India. She was shot. Um, assassinated. Assassinated by two S- Sikhs. Sikh bodyguards. Sikh bodyguards. And many things happened, including effectively a purge of, and I know my family were involved in this in New Delhi as well, a, a purge of the Sikh community. It was a genocide. I mm. never used to use that word. We don't have to get into this on the, no. or, on the chat we're having now. But um, I now realise by UN and any global body that marks a genocide, it was a genocide because it was planned and it was directed at one community and it was directed by the state. So you find yourself in the middle of that? Yeah, well, I heard that she'd been assassinated. I'm 13 years old. On holiday? On holiday. Yeah. We're out to see our relatives. Yeah. yeah. And I'm kind of like, someone got shot. Oh, mad, bro. You know, and then the next morning, my sister woke me up and was crying. And she was only 10. I was 13. And she said, I said, why are you crying? She goes, the Gudwara's on fire. And even that, well, why would you cry over that? And then she said, look out the window. And she opened the curtains like it's smoke outside the window and smell smoke. And she said, there's people, uh, they're burning down the Gurdwaras. She's 10 years old. And I'm like, oh, this isn't some mad, interesting thing that's happening to me. Uh, this is pretty serious. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I went downstairs within 10 minutes. The mob got to our house. We ran upstairs. We locked ourselves in a bedroom. My only reference, because it's a reference we all know, uh, was Anne Frank. I just went, oh, sh- damn. Mm. We're locking ourselves in a bedroom and these people are trying to kill us. You know, it was like, bang, 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 bang. You know, like, oh, I'm in India. Oh, uh, someone got shot. Oh, something's on fire. Something's on fire. Oh, all these people who I can hear only 10 metres away from me are trying to break in to murder me. My mum was crying. She was taking off her jewellery. This is stuff, I think, which is generational memories via the DNA, because they went through partition even though they were kids. She started freaking out and taking off her jewellery. All the women in the house started taking... So, yeah, it was pretty intense. The reason I brought this up is not to go into that, was because the confluence of going through, surviving a genocide, having racism thrown at me, and remember that racism in those days wasn't O-U-P word. Anyway, let's go to class. It was beatings... And also, I've only started to make sense of this recently, I was racially abused, even physically, by men at the age of eight or nine or ten. And I know there's many people in this country who are now 50 years old, who are South Asian. All of us were racially abused by grown men. So all of that came together and it made me a very difficult teenager for my mum and dad. Well... I don't know where to start unpicking that, and we probably haven't got the time to unpick it, but I imagine you as a teenager, that's huge, it's huge. Uh, You know, I still have shivers going down my spine because I remember how my uncles were smuggled out of their workplaces um, by by neighbours for sheer survival in New Delhi at the time. And, and, you know, I I was a kid at that time, seven, eight, in Wolverhampton listening about it, um, and and it was terrifying. And and cousins who wore turbans having to force to cut their hair off. It was terrifying for you. Here, but you were there. I was there, stupid. I mean, there's so many little details. Two days afterwards, because we survived it, even though they set fire to a motorcycle and put it into our front room because they wanted the house to burn. Stupid things like my dad got given a helmet because he didn't wear a turban. And they got me and my uh, dad and other people to collect loads of rocks 
And my cousin went, we're Sikhs. Next time they come back, we're going to get on the front, on the top roof. We're going to throw bloody rocks at them and hopefully we'll scare them away. And I look back and go, you can't stop a mob of 200 people intent on murder with a bunch of rocks, but I really like their fighting spirit. But that's, that's a lot to cope with as a teenager. Yeah, well, I'm only unpicking it now. Because guess what happens? You don't unpick it. You fly back a week after this has happened. 24 hours after you fly back, you're in school and you're getting called the P word. And then you don't even look at it until you're in your late 40s. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, crazy. So what about then your relationship with your family because of that experience? Did it, did it affect you? Did you sort of turn, you know, for somebody who's so intrinsically entwined with British Asian sounds, in some ways I'd almost have expected you to have turned your back on the whole, whole thing. No, it kind of went the other way because, as I said, we moved out to Hampshire and Surrey. So suddenly I was in a school which was the most run-down white working-class school. You know, I lived a uh, 15-minute drive from Aldershot, and Aldershot's the home of the British mm -hmm. Army. So most of the schools around there aren't full of sergeant majors. It's full of squaddies and squaddies' kids. So half the people I was with either had a dad who was just a squaddy and all that kind of stuff. So what happened was the way to rebel basically came through sex, drugs, rock and roll and Sikhism and also uh, basically black liberation thought, Malcolm X, you know, all that kind of stuff. And in a weird way, only in Britain does that kind of mixed together <laughs> where you're literally going i love malcolm x here's a great quote from guru nanak hey listen to public enemy you know you know it all kind of mashed up into um it's not that i'm unique it's it was a very unique set of circumstances that let me rebel and for my mum and dad their whole thing was they never came back from that situation and went, let's talk about the genocide. Isn't it mad? Let's talk about Sikh politics. They were literally like, are you going to be a doctor? And <laughs> yeah. next thing I know, and all yeah. of the princes in the mix during all of this, yep. and princes, probably the most influential artist and cultural figure in my life. All of that's mixed together. And I'm sitting there going, Guru Nanak, Prince, Malcolm X, you know, <laughs> racism. It was, it was crazy times. And I now realise... I put my mum and dad through hell. What about outside school then? So you've really painted that picture of, of actually quite a troublesome school life. What about outside school? How did you escape from it? What was your passion? Did you have a passion then? Uh, music was my passion. Okay, let's go into this then. So yeah. tell me, how did Prince help you escape from all the adversity that you had experienced up to that point? So, so the only glory, the only happiness I had was music. And like so many people of my generation that meant watching Top of the Pops like it was a Sunday sermon. It was sitting there and buying Smash Hits, also buying Enemy, also buying all the other stuff and kind of going, but that's the Smiths, but this is Kylie, but that's Duran Duran. And then amongst all of this, uh, and it really was my escape, it was a Technicolored escape via music. And, you know, in later life, I, I honestly still believe this to this day, music isn't just art, it's so beyond even theatre and film and TV. It's the highest expression of our cultural and spiritual beliefs as homo sapiens, all right? So when all of that was going on, Prince just went whoop and just changed my life. Back then, his whole stuff was, am I black, am I white, am I straight, am I gay? Uh, he was lewd, he was sexy, at the same time he was spiritual and, you know, talking about God. Um, he was ambiguous when it came to race, which I think is really important for South Asian kids in this country, because he looked like a Bollywood star. Even though we loved our black musicians, you know, the story of South Asian music in Britain is essentially one where we prayed and bowed down towards African-American creativity and all that kind of stuff. He came in and just went, I'm here now and I'm black, but I'm here for all of you. The way he looked was like Bollywood. The colours he used reflected South Asian, you know, stuff like... He'd come on stage and I'd think, the only time I've seen those colours are at an Indian wedding. Mm. My mum has a wardrobe, just like Prince's wardrobe. And, and then, there you go, the music. You know, I'm really proud as a Prince fan to now say... 
in 2022. He's the greatest musician of the 20th and the 21st century. He's pop music's Mozart and Beethoven rolled into one. And more and more very intelligent academic people and more and more people who weren't even into Prince at the time are now realising that. So for a young guy like me, he was, I'm going to use religious language, he came into my life like a prophet and like a guru. I was about to say, was he your saviour? Yeah, he was my saviour. Well, he talked about being a saviour. Mm. He actually sung about being yeah. a saviour, but he actually was. So did that have a bearing on um, the degree you did? Because you did contemporary arts, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, and at that time, uh, nearly every art degree was uh, a fine art degree. There was no such thing as a contemporary arts degree. It was actually called a creative arts degree, and by the end of the first year, they changed it to contemporary arts. We were really lucky because... We went in to do our degree. We were sat next to the fine artists and they were like, you're doing pottery and you're doing charcoal and you're doing this stuff. Our teachers turned around and went, you need to learn about Joseph Boyce. We want you to learn about surrealism. And guess who started coming out? The, you know, the young British artists, Tracy Emin, uh, all of those people were coming through who just like the surrealists went, art is whatever you want it to be. We were so lucky. It was like a secret revolutionary period at Nottingham University where they just turned around and said, we're going to teach you painting and drawing, drama and performance, dance and music. How dare any of you, though, see them as separate disciplines? So it was beautiful. In my first year, I got to do pieces like... Um, this is like people talking about their dreams now. I'm going to talk to you <laughs> about my student artwork. To me, this came really easy. I now look back and go... I wish I'd carried on with the art because I'd be a millionaire by now. I had a mirror uh, where you walked into a room and uh, P-A-K-I was spelt out, but it wasn't spelt out in uh, blocks. It was spelt out in images from the Southall riots. So when you walked in and saw the P word looking back at you, each letter was made out of the first brown riots, the Southall riots. That happened a couple of, you know, miles away from my house. So I know it's student art, but you get what that yeah, means. Yeah, totally. You know, um, I did loads of stuff like that. And I had my teachers just going, this is brilliant. I had uh, an image of Gandhi with a machine gun on top of uh, the Union Jack. I mean, student, really obvious art, but I thought I was really cool. Another piece of artwork I did, there was some B-movie in India in the 80s where they had some topless Bollywood actresses with machine guns in their hand. So I got that image, and I got an image of a Gurdwara, a Sikh temple, a mosque, an Islamic place of worship, and a mandir, uh, a Hindu uh, place of worship. And I made a building which was a third Hindu, a third Muslim, and a third Sikh. Bursting out the front door were three topless women, Asian women with machine guns in their hands. And no one came and found you for that? <laughs> How did you get away with that? You can get away with anything at university, can't you? you can, anything. Yeah. You, again, you're bringing all that experience of your teenage years, your childhood years, into the contemporary art. But then, how the hell did you get into DJing? Because what you've said so far, for me, where's Bobby Friction, the world-renowned artist? I know. I, well, you know, obviously, as, as these words leave my mouth, I'm like, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I do it? We know why I didn't do it. We know why so many people of colour don't do anything. Especially in the 90s, you come out and suddenly you go, no one's going to take this seriously, no one cares. I just want to quickly bring up one other student. She was doing some great artwork and she was a feminist and I really loved her artwork. And we were in the refectory. She said, I want to talk to you. And because what was happening was, my teacher kept basically going, you're brilliant in front of the whole class. I kept getting 70% for each piece of artwork I did. And she took me aside and she went, you know, like, this isn't going to last for long. And I said, what? She goes, all this Asian, Asian stuff that you're doing, everything you do is Asian. It's boring. It's so boring. You're always doing this Asian stuff. The teachers love it. Oh, my God. You know what? Like, I, your artwork makes me sick, okay? <laughs> I haven't seen her since. What did you say to her, though? I'm, Anyone who knows me will know. I went, oh, really? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I'm very mouthy after any situation. <laughs> Not I'm anyway. great on radio. <laughs> I'm great when there's a mic in front of me. But usually when someone has a go at me, I just shut up and I start smiling at them. But I, I look back now and I just think, wow, isn't it mad? Because 
if I meet her now, we'd probably be allies, at least artistically, in a world that's going one way. And we're trying to, a lot of us are trying to bend it, manipulate it ever so slightly to kind of go that way. But what she did actually was very interesting because I think that was the world that I was thrown into when the, when the degree finished. And what happened was, I haven't talked to you about a lot of my musical pieces because I was doing music performance art as well. And um, it was just one of those situations. I got back, I'm working class. My mum and dad like, where's the money? You've done an art degree, why haven't you got a job? Next thing I know, I'm wearing a suit and I'm selling pages going, yeah, yeah, you want pages, bro. I'm going to get you pages, you know, because that's what you do when, yeah. when, when you're working class of any colour. You, you have this amazing time at uni and then you're banging to it because you, your mum and dad can't afford you and you can't afford to not work. After two years of working, I had a friend who just went, I've gone to this thing. It's called Outcast. There's a guy called Nathan Sawney there. Bobby, I know you. This is you. Everything I saw there was you. Guess what it is? It's Desi music, South Asian music, but it's mixed with jazz and drum and bass and house. And I went to a gig and I saw Nathan Sawney. I saw DJ Rithu. I saw an outcast night. And at the same night, I got handed a flyer for Talvin Sings, a knock-on night. And suddenly, everything I'd been looking for, which was essentially my mod movement, my rockabilly moment, my punk moment, my summer of love hippie moment arrived in London in 1996-97 and it was brown and it was from people exactly the same age as me. Were you doing it in the bedroom before that then? I know you, you said that you did no. before. No. No. So you went from uni perform like studying it and doing yeah. it at uni straight into working with... I mean, these guys are royalty. It was two years after uni and I went to these gigs and actually what I did was I spent two years at those gigs expressing myself via my clothes. And it was mm. Parv Bansal, the British Asian playwright, who sadly has now passed away, who literally got me at one of these club nights and pointed his finger at me and went, what are you doing? I don't know if you've seen the movie Quadrophenia, which is like the central movie for the mod movement in Britain. Sting, from the police, plays a character called The Face. Why is he called The Face? Because he's the face of the mods. He does nothing. He's not a musician. He's not even a good mod. He's not great on his moped. He's the face. And literally in the, in the movie, you get to realise he's just the face. Yeah. He's literally just a clothing expression of something really deep. Parv Bansal, the playwright, pushed me up against the wall, jabbed his finger at me and went, you're turning into the face of the Asian underground and of Asian music. Effing do something. Stop all of this. You're just the face. You don't want to be the face. You, of all people, can't be the face. And within two months, I started learning how to DJ. I got offered a gig and I had my debut DJ gig at the world famous Blue Note in Hoxton Square. When he put you up against that wall, what was it that in you that went... Because you could have gone sort off. Oh, he was so right. Look, these days they call it imposter syndrome. I was like, leave me alone. I got makeup on, I look fine. You know, when I walked into the club, this is so shallow. People would go and see Talvin Singh and, and, and Nathan Sawney and, you know, Earth Tribe and all of these amazing DJs. But they'd be looking at me because I was literally a peacock. You know, I walked in, I had bridal bindies on my face. I was what these days would be called physically outside, at least, on a clothing level, non-binary, you know? I had punk spikes. I was mixing up South Asian Bollywood pop art with basically uh, rebellious youth culture from Britain because it can only happen in Britain, right? This is why this island is so amazing, no matter, no matter how much we put it down. So um, he floored me. He was totally right. I'd become the face. I was literally, I had nothing about me at all, apart from the way I looked. What did your um, family make of it? Did they see you go out like that? And yeah. what, what, what did they think? Because My dad, as I say, once again, maybe if I was born up, brought up in Birmingham or with a more Bindu family, a more village family, I don't I want you to know, I'm not saying that on a horrible level. Um, <laughs> he looks at me every time. <laughs> <laughs> When he says it, what are you saying about my family? I'm not saying anything. But, but, but <laughs> maybe if I was in that situation, I would have been beaten black and blue. Whereas my dad would just look at me like I was dog turd on his shoe and go, oh, 
<laughs> and then look at my mum because this yeah. is what the patriarchy does. You've done this. Yep. And my mum would look at me and the best thing about my mum is she would always go, oh my God, he's so right. And then there'd be a glint and I go kind of going, oh, you look nice, darling. <laughs> <laughs> I remember turning up to a wedding in a sari with my Bjork uh, knots in my hair and uh, glitter and them saying, don't come like that again next time. <laughs> So who, I mean, you've talked about sort of your musical influence in Prince. Was there anybody who was like non-industry that really influenced you? Oh, wow. So honestly, uh, I took everything that Parv said seriously, Parv Bansal, because when I was walking around Hounslow as a Asian, South Asian goth, you know, black, 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 which I still mostly do these days, you know, I look like lead singer of the Sisters of Mercy or something like that, you know, dark glasses, bangles. He was the only other South Asian guy in the whole of Western London who looked like that. And he was three years older than me. And I was like, oh, you look good. And he was like, I write plays. I do this. I'm a DJ. So he definitely influenced me massively because he showed me that um, the walls, which I thought just extended around Hounslow or just my mum and dad, were basically walls that could be absolutely smashed to smithereens. So do you remember your first gig then? When after you'd sort of come come out as yeah. a DJ? Yeah, yeah. Tell yeah. us about your first gig. Oh, so lucky, so lucky. So my first gig was at the Blue Note, uh, which at the time was essentially the trendiest club in all of Britain. In America, people will talk about the Blue Note. That was the place where I peacocked. I went around and I was the face. And DJ Patan, who was a good friend, said, you need to DJ. I was like, I know I need to DJ. Parv told me I need to DJ. He goes, you've got a slot. It's in a month. So suddenly I'm like, I need to practice. Did I practice? No, I didn't. I spent most of my time getting high on drinks and just being young. So what happened was basically the universe moved in my favor. I was always very aware during this time that um, the Asian underground, although it was great, it was essentially trying to escape its working class roots. So you'd have Nitin Sawney doing jazz, you'd have Tauving doing classical Indian, mm. but anyone I spoke to, not Nitin and Tauving, but anyone I spoke to within that scene would go, have you seen all these Bhangra gigs? Oh my God, bruv, I mean, it's so ghetto, isn't it? And I'm like, number one, you're working class, number two, you're as ghetto as they come, but you've just got some hair dye in your hair and your, your nose pierced. And number three, I was at that gig last week and it was amazing, Bhangra is punk. The sheer energy of Bhangra is like punk music. For my first gig, I basically played four Bhangra fusion tracks, which you couldn't have played at a Bhangra gig, and had never been played at the Blue Note, and it was like I'd set a nuclear explosion off. I knew that I had the right tracks. I thought I was going to fail and everyone would be laughing at me, and I pressed play on the first track, and halfway through, the entire club was dancing, the building was vibrating, by the fourth track, people were screaming and, you know, that whole stuff you see yeah. all the time now, coming over to me and pulling, grabbing hold of me. And also, I'm not saying I did it first, but in those days, DJs just stood behind the decks. Look, I'm Punjabi. you got to get in, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I'm going to get in. So get I was in. running out from behind the decks and watching my decks or watching me DJing, but I wasn't DJing because I was watching where I was standing 20 seconds earlier. I was doing Bhangra, I was jumping and everything. And by the end of that set, you know, I, I got what a, D, a DJ version of a standing ovation. And uh, I remember all the people I respected, like, cheering and looking at me. And I just remember thinking, it sounds so cheesy, but, like, I've arrived and I'm amazing. And you then got... I needed a good, like, six months to, to kind of talk myself out. I think the, com the come down must have been yeah, quite yeah, a yeah. thing, yeah? But I suppose you, have to, you do have to have that sense of inner belief yeah. when you're performing like that, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Tell me about that. Your inner belief, how have you fostered it over the years? I mean, you, you know, you've talked about influences, and, but this could have gone in a completely different direction with all the trauma during childhood. Yeah, I think that um, the inner belief comes slowly but surely. If I get told to do a radio show now, I go in and I do it. I meet DJs who've been on radio for four years and they go, how'd you stop the pain in your stomach? And I'm like, damn, I've not had a pain, anxiety in my stomach for 20 years. I think when you're initially in that pain, you need to turn your negatives into positives. And I'll give you an example. I didn't have the money to buy a record box or a CD box. But most of my first set was on CDs. This is when uh, decks were going into CDJs. So I didn't have the box 
but I had 60 CDs. And I said, mum, is there anything I can carry these CDs in? She gave me an empty mango box. All right. So do you remember the mango yeah, boxes yeah, are totally. made out of wood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alfonso mangoes, all South Asian families love them. So I carried my CDs in an empty mango box. And I was so embarrassed by the fact that I didn't have one of those black carrying cases that DJs had. And I walked in and a couple of people laughed. And straight away, I just went, listen, all you fakes. I'm the real deal. I'm carrying... This is sweet. You wait till this honey hits you. You wait till this. I'm sweet like mango, you know. And I turned turned it around. Obviously, I bullshitted um, because I couldn't afford that and I didn't have it. And then I remember like fourth or fifth DJ said some guy coming to goes, "Are you that DJ with a mango box?" You know. So that little thing of turning your negative into a positive is what I did literally until I got to a point where even I, with all my insecurities, was able to turn around and go. You've done loads. You've been on air for like 10 years. You don't get pain in your stomach anymore. You've written for magazines, all the stuff that I've done. So it took another 10 years of um, bullshitting and lying to actually kind of realise that it's fine now. You don't have to fake it anymore because you've already done it. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you find your skin, don't you? You find yourself in your own skin. Yeah. So the, well, right, your debut then on the BBC. So, you know, you're doing your live gigging and what have you. How did that break come? Wow, so that actually came thanks to Birmingham because I was DJing at Shanti at the time. Can I just add a little note? And that is, I dreamed that I was going to be on Radio 1 as the Asian, you know, uh, Trevor Nelson, the Asian John Peel, all that kind of stuff. I dreamt about it. When I started DJing, I kept saying in any conversation, why isn't there South Asian music on Radio 1? Forget all the other stations. On Radio 1. Why don't we have our own Trevor Nelsons and, and John Peels? And um, I was DJing at Shanti, and the promoter of Shanti was approached by the BBC. So Radio 1 had decided they were going to have a South Asian music show. Really forward looking at them, because actually it can be argued, if you take the Asian network away, uh, the BBC's representation on a South Asian level, apart from news readers, is woefully inadequate. But really forward-looking people within Radio 1, and I want to thank them, Reese and, and, and Paul Thomas, they basically cast the net out. Everyone got uh, piloted. Loads of the pioneers I looked up to got piloted. People I didn't know got piloted. People in Birmingham got piloted. And what happened was me and the promoter from Shanti went in as a, as a duo. The BBC came back to me in, like, all great Hollywood movies, movies about an ascent to fame or something like that. They came back and went... We want you guys, but we don't want this guy. We only want you. And we'd gone in as really good friends, as people who considered each other as brothers and had offered them two brothers mm. to present the show. I think they'd already uh, maybe piloted Nahal. Nahal, even back then, was a very formidable broadcaster. He'd already been on TV for a couple of years. You know, Nahal's CV at the time already spoke for itself. And they said, we want you to do this show with this guy called Nahal. And um, I just remember pre-recording the first show and being with my friend in his flat. Um, we listened to it because the first show was on at 3 a.m. and finished at 5 a.m. And um, I didn't tell my friend this, but I went to the toilet and I cried my, my eyes out. Oh. Not cried my eyes out from, oh, isn't this amazing? Because it was too much to take in. I'm on the radio. I'm listening to myself on the radio. We're doing South Asian music. It's Radio Bloody One. What happened to your friend? Your brother? Oh, he's still my friend. He's, he's still, still my friend. friend. That's yeah, okay. Yeah. Just checking that bit. And then from that grew a friendship with Nihal as well. Yeah. For, for a number of years, you guys worked together yeah, on Radio 1. we worked on. together for about eight years. Very prickly, no pun intended, uh, a relationship full of friction. Probably because we both were so invested in ourselves, our journeys, and we both wanted to change the world. And I think we pro probably both thought we were going to do it ourselves. And along the way, the big bulging establishment says you're going to do it together. And it's that whole thing. Sorry if I sound big-headed. They put in two five-star Michelin chefs in the same bloody kitchen. Are you still mates? It's all cool. It's all cool. Look, if I see him, I'll, I'll talk to him. If he sees me, he'll talk to me. I respect what he does. He respects what I do. But I tend to, if I work closely with people, they're friends for life. Me and Lahal have not gone out for dinner or out for a drink since the last show happened. And even the last show was troublesome in the sense that 
I didn't have the language back then to say, this is a mental health situation. Eight years of amazing times of unbelievable radio. I mean, me and him together were like... We were listening to Remember. I'm kind of like your era, so I was listening to you on radio. It it was like nuclear fusion. We'd get in a studio and we knew we were amazing and we'd bounce off each other. But yeah, towards the end, my mental health was taking a battering. I didn't realise it was mental health. I just kept going, I can't do this anymore. Radio One said, you need to make a decision. Are you going to do this anymore or are you going to go because we're not changing anything. And I said, I'm going. And the reason I said I'm going, honestly, was just capitalism. I was already on the Asian network getting paid more than I got was getting paid on Radio 1. So it was like, I'll lose the Radio 1 thing. I'll have it forever. And now I can do my own thing on the Asian network. And love the Asian network. They gave me three hours, five nights a week for five years after I left Radio 1. And you're still there? Yeah, just about. <laughs> How pivotal has the BBC been in um, defining you as a DJ, a presenter who pushes specialist music? Not just Asian sounds, but it's like world sounds is what I think of when I think of you. The BBC's been amazing and I think the BBC is an amazing asset to the country. I think that the BBC, as we all know, is always getting knocks from people and the reason why is because it's an asset and also it's one of the greatest parts of our establishment so everyone thinks they own it which they do because everyone pays the license fee i've just been lucky i've learned this now being at the bbc for 20 years you get the wrong manager you get the wrong person who who picks djs or define shows the culture can suffer really badly i was lucky that i got my white brothers, not that I'm defining everything by race, but the people at Radio 1 who went, no, 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 Even though no one thinks it, we need a South Asian show. I'm lucky that I got onto the Asian network just as I was coming through when they was having a generational change of, this is all Bollywood and language programming. Where's the new fresh stuff coming through? Then as I got older, I was lucky that I had managers who turned around and went, well, he's not just playing a couple of Bhangra tracks. He's literally finding a rapper from from Bangalore, Mm. a goth electronic guitarist from Karachi, and also a spoken word poet from Toronto, as well as Wolverhampton. So I've just been really lucky. But I do know that um, I have seen the BBC sometimes via its management structure snuff out voices that should have been elevated. So who influences and inspires you now? Wow. Um, All right, it's split, I think, into two parts. I think when you get to a certain age and you've done X amount of work, you look at the kids and you see this glow within some of them and you go, oh my God, you are a future Prince or a future Michael Jackson or a future Parv Bansal. And they don't know it, but you know it. But you also know that only you know it. And if you told someone else, they go, all right, fine, 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 fine. So it sounds so po-faced, but it's the kids. And for me, especially over the last five years, it's mean those kids in Dharavi, in, I hate to use this word, the slums of Mumbai. The, the kids I met in Karachi and Lahore. Because guess what's happening to these kids? They've gone from so-called third world culture to basically having YouTube on in their house 24-7 going, that guy can do it, that guy in Washington, that guy in Michigan, that guy in London, I can do it too. So um, the kids, especially the kids from the global south and especially working class kids from across the globe, working class white kids, black kids, I feel like the, the future's theirs for the taking in a way that's never happened in history. I think that the establishment needs to be really afraid because... What we're seeing now is bigger than the move from Bronze Age culture into farming or whatever, you know, uh, 1066 into the Middle Ages. We're about to see all of that history happen within the next 100 years. So how have you balanced this out then? Because actually, we could argue, and I, you know, as a former BBC presenter as well, we are part of the establishment. You, You still are there. Do you leverage that to enable these disparate and, you know, fantastic, talented, working-class kids to make their music and be on the scene. Yes, I do. And that's why I'm, I know that even though I look like I'm part of the establishment because I've been taking a BBC paycheck, I might be considered part of the establishment. I don't think I am because my whole time at the BBC has been one stressful bloody day after another whilst I argue 
in the face of people. I'm just like, what are you doing? How are you getting that salary? Who gave you that job? It's not their fault. I've realized as I've gotten older, this happens in life, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. You might be into into design. You might be working in any industry and you might go, how come not all the managers should be managing? I know people who work in the public services like the NHS and they're like, oh my God, some of these NHS managers, what are they doing? It's us nurses and doctors who are the front line. I see my job as to, I'm like a nurse or a doctor telling an NHS manager to fix up his life. So I feel, so I don't feel like part of the, the, the establishment because I argue with them constantly and people tend to avoid me when I'm walking into a room. <laughs> Change making there, right there. Moving on to then sort of the now, do you ever call yourself a brummie? You've been here 15 years. Is, is that enough? Okay, so Birmingham... It's my home. Number one, I live here. Number two, my kids live here. So my home, even though I'm in London three days a week, my home is here. I wake up with the dulcet tones of my kids speaking to me in a black country accent. How you doing, Daddy? Daddy! What's going on, Daddy? Did you go and DJ last night, Daddy? (laughs) You know, so, so, and to me, that's the language of love because the one thing Londoners do is they always take the mick out of the accent. So when I first moved up here, I'd get all my London mates going, oh, what the broomies like? And then I remember it being this point where they turned around and did it. And I went, just stop now. I said, that's how my wife talks. And that's the language of love. I hear love in a black country accent, so just stop it. So I am a Brummie because my kids are Brummies and I would never move them away from this city. Secondly, Shanti, those club nights, as well as every, people in London, made sure that I never got into that, that, that mirrored hall, that London can give people that bubble whether it's a a, a social media bubble a uh, establishment bubble the moment you're outside of london you're already detached from that and then last but not least if we want to look at the future of britain i don't think we should be looking at london i don't think we even need to be looking at dewsbury or bradford or you know other places yes there's pockets of the future the real future of britain is birmingham because they've done it right It's still a battle. We can see it with the Commonwealth Games. How do we retain our British identity? How do we soak in these waves of immigrants? How do we make sure, no matter how much they change the culture, they're still British before anything else? And for me, Birmingham seems to be the only city that really gets it right. I've always said this, having moved down to London from Wolverhampton after graduating and then coming back to Birmingham, there's just something... Do you know what? I actually think it's just something authentic. Yeah. You see what you get, and you get what you see. Yeah, yeah. And there's kind of nothing in between. And, and actually, that is a really, really nice place to be. But actually, this is a difficult thing to attain as well. It's that, but it's also, weirdly enough, the scientific physics ahead of me just goes, the way building's been done in Birmingham is really interesting. Look, in London, everyone mixes together and there's positives to that yeah i'll give you one example on a south asian level there was never the same sikh muslim uh troubles in the 80s that you had in birmingham because every street was in the brown bits of london was hindu sikh muslim hindu sikh muslim whereas here you go the muslims live on that side of the city and and the sikhs live here so i get that there are issues but now that things are moving and and every shade every color every class is kind of impinging on each other the fact that Birmingham has so many houses so close to a city centre I think makes a massive difference Birmingham is a city full of people with a city centre servicing its people London now feels like a city centre that some people live on the edges of for you then has Birmingham changed you as a as a person I'm not to take your public identity away but you as the man yeah of course it has the greenery of Birmingham, the parks of Birmingham, the people of Birmingham, the celebration of working class culture, which it gets pummeled in other places or gets elevated until that's all that city's about. Just the respect of working class culture, its love of the initial wave of South Asian immigrants, Jamaican and Caribbean immigrants, the way you can still walk around and meet people who go, I'm Irish, but I'm British. You know, I mean, you don't meet Irish Brits in London anymore unless they've just come over from Ireland. So it's changed me. It's kept my feet on the ground. I think London and and success may have pulled my feet off the ground. <laughs> no, not you. <laughs> but, but Birmingham has kept my feet on the ground. And also, whatever happens in London, 
the future of this country looks like this beautiful city. That's why I'm happy I'm here and why I'm, I can't imagine ever leaving now. On a musical level, how has Brum, in your mind, influenced music? Oh, wow. Well, there's a podcast in itself. Whether you talk about dub, reggae, bhangra, guali music, you know, like, even though there was a bhangra scene, I'm, this is on a brown level now, even though there was a bhangra scene in London and bhangra is amazing and London was amazing, the real nuts and bolts bhangra happened in Birmingham, oh, yeah. you know? What do you say to people who um, kind of go, yeah, Brum, whatevs? Well, they say it because of Brum's really, really bad name that I grew up with. I just got told Birmingham's Spaghetti Junction, it's foundries and factories, it's dirty, and everyone's got a really horrible accent. Now that my wife and my kids speak that accent, I'm not going to rest until people realise that you know, if you want to hit and feel the real Shakespearean version of Britain, you've got to come to Birmingham. You know, all that stuff that built Britain over the last 1,000 years, you can only really find it now in, in Birmingham. So forget those people. They don't know what they're talking about. And um, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I brought all my friends up that I grew up with to Birmingham for a weekend for a festival that happened um, near the new HS2 line. And... Um, it was just loads and loads of guys in their mid-40s going, what? And I took them through, you know, uh, through the canals. I took them via the mailbox, got them some places, then, you know, took them through the city centre. And it was just their jaws dropping going, what is this place? Because there's something about this place, looking at where we are right now. Mm -hmm. This doesn't look like Manchester. It doesn't look like Newcastle. It honestly, at last, feels like a second city. It's not a second city. It is the city in my mind. And you are the Bobby Friction. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you tonight. Big up, Bobby. Thank you, Satna. On Record, In Conversation is produced by Siobhan Stevenson for the Birmingham Music Archive and presented by Birmingham 2022 Festival with the generous support of Arts Council England and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. (laughs) 